Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the fifth week of our series on Matthew chapters 10 and 11 called Offensive Love. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us. And without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. Well, this morning we're going to look at the end of uh, Matthew chapter 10. And we've been looking at this section and the whole section's been challenging. And what we're going to find is that the part we're going to look at this morning is maybe even more so. It's got a number of you know, really challenging statements that, you know, that almost make us cringe. They're, they're not what we'd expect. And uh, what we're going to find is that there's some great beauty. It might be hard to understand, but great beauty in the principles that are here. So if you have a Bible, I'd inv- invite you to open up to Matthew chapter 10 and to keep it open throughout our time so you could follow along in the text from uh, what we're saying in the message. But let me begin by reading this passage we're going to look at today, Matthew uh, 10, starting in verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive the prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive the righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. May God bless the reading of his word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to come together to worship you today, to celebrate what you're doing. Father, to be able to now even dive into your word. Thank you for the things that you're teaching me through my own study of this passage, for the great truths that are here, that you want to guide our thinking and our hearts and our behavior. Father, I pray your blessing in our time. I pray that your spirit would speak through me and in spite of me. Father, help each one of us to have hearts that are open to hear and understand and respond not to the words of men, but Father, that through this man, that your word would come forth and we would respond to it as what you are saying to each one of us. I pray your blessing in Jesus' name, amen. Now, about 20 years ago, um, a movie came out. Some of you might remember the animated movie, The Incredibles. Uh, It was this film about these superheroes that had been forced to retire and kind of hide their superpowers. And some of the superheroes were okay with that, and some were not so much. So you have like Mr. Incredible and Frozone who wanted to continue to, you know, to, to use their superpowers so they'd go out at night and fight his vig- vigilantes. At one point, Frozone is getting ready for a dinner date with his wife, and he looks out the window and he sees these giant robots going by and these explosions, and you know, he's ready to jump into and fight. You know, so he goes to find his super suit to become Frozone, only at that point, he has, runs into a problem. That's where this clip picks in. Honey! What? Where's my super suit? What? Where is my super suit? Don't you think about running out to do a nose 
I love that line. You know, I am your wife. I am the greatest good you're ever going to get. All right, let me start by asking you a question. What is your greatest good? The greatest good you're ever going to get. What is the thing that you'll drop everything else for? You know, even when you look at the images within the movie, the idea is that, is that, you know, even Mr. Incredible, well, he was going out to fight superheroes because that was what was more important to him and he was failing as a dad. He was walking away from that. Frozone, he's ready to, to go out and, you know, fight, you know, do the superhero thing and, and he's going to sacrifice the important plans with his wife, harmony with his wife. And, or is the most important thing, the greatest good, the marriage. And okay, I'm going to sacrifice some of the superhero stuff to protect time and the marriage and, and invest in that relationship. Now, that's fun, but the idea is that we all have something that is our greatest good. We all have something that we value above everything else, that we pursue everything else, that we willingly sacrifice other good and important things in the pursuit of that thing that is most important, of greatest value to us. Now, in my experience, the thing that for most of us is of our greatest, our greatest good isn't necessarily what we may say it is or what we think it is. Well, we may say something, but but experience actually shows that may not be. So sometimes, well, it's my marriage, and, but yet I'm now sacrificing time with my marriage because I'm running around and, and I've got kids involved in every sport and everything, and suddenly I, there's no time to invest in there. Or my family, and, but the fact is that I'm sacrificing time with family and, and building my career or, or being out every Saturday pursuing my hobby. And so what is the greatest good? What is the thing that our real greatest good and, and ultimately, if you want to know, it's revealed by probably more than anything how we spend our most precious resource, and that's our time. How do we spend our time? What are the things that we sacrifice to pursue that one thing? And, and then how do we spend our money is another good issue. And do you know what your greatest good is? It's, a, it's an important question. Now, this morning, we're diving into the section in Matthew 10, and, uh, and I want to start by acknowledging that we read these few verses a few minutes ago, and there's a bunch of verses in there that are challenging, that are confusing, maybe even almost sound offensive. You know, people will often talk about Jesus as this great moral teacher, and there's numerous passages that they'll point to, and these statements, these great moral statements that people love and that people will repeat, something like the golden rule where he said, you know, do unto others as you would like them to do unto you. Man, what a great statement. Or, or when he said in John 15, you know, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Well, again, what a great statement. But if you spend time reading throughout all the gospels, you're gonna find that there are numerous other things that he says that we struggle to understand, that aren't things that we're gonna repeat and say this is, you know, you know great moral statement everybody infirms. Some of them actually sound harsh, even maybe offensive. And people who have studied the teaching and life of Jesus often refer to these as the, the hard sayings of Jesus. You know, they're hard because they're hard to understand, and, but also to apply. So, so we see in verse 34, Jesus says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And you might be thinking, wait a second, no, 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 Jesus, he's the Prince of Peace. What is he saying here? Or then we go to verse 35. Do, for I've not come to for I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mother, a daughter-in-law against his mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And again, you're thinking, wait a second, doesn't Jesus tell us to love? And if we're to love our neighbor, shouldn't our love for our family be all the greater? And isn't Jesus pro-family? What is he saying here? Well, we go down to 
Later on, he says, Do, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. What does it mean to take up his cross? And, and worthy of it, is that something we have to do to make ourselves worthy? And what you see again, there's a number of really hard sayings right in this little section. Now, in, in being hard sayings, I think part of it is we've got to see Jesus is saying things that are intentionally provocative. He's saying things in a way, in a sense, that provoke our, our emotions because in part that he's trying to get our attention. But he's also challenging us to dig beyond what seems to be at the surface level to deal with this deeper teaching. And at this deeper teaching, you know, sometimes we may look at that and we say, well, yeah, I do that because we throw out platitudes. And he kind of breaks through the platitudes and forces us to really, to not only understand what it means, but the difficulty of what it means to apply that truth. So the first difficult, hard statement we're looking at this morning is in verse 34. He says, do not think that I've come bring to peace on to, uh, through the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And so it talks about that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Yes, the Bible says that, but who now has come to divide? Now, I think one of the reasons that many struggle with what Jesus is saying here is it goes against and even contradicts a popular cultural perspective of, of what Jesus is, who he, what he came to do. I think many in our culture look at Jesus and they so emphasize the idea of his love and his grace and, uh, and, and they then insist, well, what that means, if he's all loving, that means he's going to accept everybody, he's gonna affirm everybody, all lifestyles, all beliefs, you know, all, wherever you're at, Jesus is gonna love you just the way you are. And what we've gotta realize is that a lot of false views of Jesus grow out of a, a, a misunderstanding, a mis, you know, kind of a incomplete view of the Bible's teaching. Does the Bible teach that Jesus is loving? Yes. It teaches that he was the friend of sinners. Yes, it, it teaches that, that you know, was the marginalized and the rejected of the, his time that were drawn towards Jesus. And meanwhile, the religious leaders were, were re repelled by him. But what we have to realize is at the same time is that while he reached out to everyone, while he showed grace to everyone, while he loved people where they were at, he also loved them too much to let them stay there because he related to them with grace, but at the same time, he also spoke, spoke truth to them. Truth that called them to follow him and to change their lives. So let me show you an example of this. A well-known story is in, in uh, John chapter eight, the woman that was caught the act of adultery. The religious leaders had, had caught her and they were ready to expose her and, and you know, literally stone her to death because of her sin and, and Jesus showed grace. And so he looks at all these people that are in their you know, self-righteousness and he tells them, let the one who is without sin amongst you be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, now all of them drop their stones because they know that they're all guilty of something. But then after everyone leaves, he, you know, he says, where are those that condemn you? Well, you're nowhere. And, and then he says this, he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. So he doesn't just say, neither do I condemn you, I accept you just the way you are. He says, no, neither do I condemn you, I show you grace, but at the same time, you're sinning, go now and sin no more, change your life. There's perfect grace and perfect truth put together. Now what we need to realize is that Jesus is divisive because he's not what we expect him to be. He's a God who showed grace, but he is also one who spoke truth. In fact, he claimed to be ultimate truth, the absolute truth. And so when you study the Gospels, it's obvious that Jesus was not a religious leader who said, well, here's my opinions, here's my ideas, here's a truth that you could choose to try. No, he said, this isn't something works for you. He, he claimed to be God. 
And so when he spoke, he's claiming to speak the very words of God that are true for all people, for all times, for all cultures. And so, for example, we see in the beginning of John's gospel, look at how John describes Jesus. Not as a teacher, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, literally the word. He was the logos. He was the, you know, the source of all truth. He was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that has been made. That he's claiming to be God eternal. And because he's God eternal, he is, he is literally the word, the source of truth. Everything that he says is truth. And therefore, ultimately, his word applies to everyone. It confronts us all. Look what he says uh, in John chapter 14. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Not I am a way, not I am a truth, not that I am a way to life. No, I am the way, the only, the only truth, the only way to life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's this absolute claim of truth. Now, we live in a world that rejects absolute truth. And, and these statements in our culture are by many seem to be very offensive. How could you say that? That's arrogant, that's pride, that's judgmental. And no, we need to realize it was offensive in that time in Jesus' culture. They rejected him then. It's offensive in our time and our culture as well. And it's this claim to be the truth that I think was one of the, one reason, one of, one of the main reasons that people rejected and divided. So they not only rejected Jesus, See, if I reject him as truth, I've got to reject those who represent him because we speak the truth as well. It's truth we don't want to hear. Let me even try to show you how this is true. Have you ever thought about, you know, why is it that our culture is so offended by what we say on, on spiritual moral issues? You know, if I, if I literally, if I, there are people that will put a Bible verse up on social media, and if it's the wrong Bible verse and speaks on the wrong issue, people have literally gotten fired over that. Why is it that people are so hostile and so negative to the Bible's teaching on moral issues? Why is it that pointing out that the Bible says our certain things are wrong are decried as being hateful and phobic? And specifically, let me ask it this way. There are numerous other religions that speak about certain moral issues and they call them wrong, they call them sinful. And why is it that those other religions and their teachings aren't rejected in the same way? They're not responded with the same hostility for their beliefs. People aren't offended. Let me give you an example of that. You know, both the Jewish and the Muslim religions both teach that eating pork is wrong, it's sinful. All right, now let me ask, anybody have bacon here this morning? You enjoy it? How many, some of you have bacon this week? You know, if you had bacon this morning, one of the nice things when you make it, you know, you cook it, and it's, the grease kind of the smell stays with you. So if you get hungry, you kind of smell it in the morning. You know, it's just kind of, you know, kind of, kind of bring that back a little bit. And, and uh, you know, so if you're thinking about that, you're hungry for bacon, you're remembering that, let me ask, just speak to you and say, how dare you? Are you kidding? You bacon eaters? Don't you know it's wrong? Now, why are you laughing instead of being offended? You know, when you look at that, why is it that, that people don't attack the Muslim church as being pork-phobic? You ever think that they, they don't do that? Why not? Why is it that people don't become angry and offended at these religions decrying how judgmental and hateful they are towards bacon eaters? We don't do that. I know it sounds silly, but I think it's actually a really important question. 
You know, why is it that people are so offended by the teaching and claims of the Bible and not offended by the teaching and claims of other religions? And I think the reason is this, is that when I hear the teaching, Mormon or the Muslim faith teaching that bacon is wrong, I know that they're wrong. I know that's a man-made rule that doesn't, there's no truth to it. So I look at that and I say, so what if they think I'm an evil bacon eater? It doesn't mean anything to me. I still enjoy my bacon just as much. It doesn't convict me. It doesn't make me feel bad. They can believe whatever they want. It doesn't impact me. But here, why are people offended by the Bible? And I think that it's deep down, God has placed a conscience within us that people know that the Bible's truth. It's God's truth. It's his light. What, what Jesus said, it is true. And because it's true, it's, it's, it pricks at something in our conscience. And if I'm behaving against that, there's something in me that I know that because it's pricking that conscience, it's convicting me in such a way that I don't like and I can't ignore. So what happens? Either we have to submit to Christ, we have to submit to his truth, we have to align ourselves with that, in which we find the freedom of his truth, or I'm offended by it and I have to not only, not only reject him, but I have to silence the truth and I have to silence all those that are speaking his truth to protect my conscience. That explains why Jesus is so divisive. That's the idea that it's taught in the end of John chapter, John 3, verses 19 through 21, where he talks about that Jesus is a light. And what is the light? Light exposes and it reveals. And so there's a sense that some of us will come to the light and the light will so and exposes our sin, but it also shows us the way to life. And so I love the light because it shows me how to fix my life. It shows me truth and to be able to how to build a life that works. But others will say, well, I don't want that. So I hate the light because it exposes my sinfulness. So I reject the light and any who carry the light. That's why Jesus divides. That's what it's talking about here. You see, because it's not ultimately tr only truth, only absolute truth, but it's truth that ultimately calls us to submit and so he calls us to this absolute submission to him in life. And this goes back to something we've seen several times in this whole section. See, if we go back all the way back to where, what was the core message that he was preaching at the end of chapter nine, he's preaching the kingdom of heaven. Or we look at it and we say, as followers of Christ, what is it that we are called to preach? Look what he says in verse seven of chapter 10, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is hand. Now, what is the kingdom of heaven? Well, it's just Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We can know him. It's all those things. But part of the kingdom of heaven also implies that there is a king. There is a king who deserves the right of ultimate authority in our lives. And, and if I want to be part of the kingdom and receive all the benefits of the kingdom, that means that I also need to submit to the rule and authority of the king in my life. And that leads to the reason why people reject and hate Jesus. They reject his authority as king. They hate the truth that he is a king who deserves our obedience and submission. And so in rejecting the king, they reject his truth and anyone who stands with him. See, here's what we need to realize. Again, the only way to really accept Jesus, to accept his kingdom, is to embrace him as king. There's some that will say, well, I accepted Jesus. I prayed to ask him to forgive my sins, but I don't want to submit. I don't want to, I don't want to be Lord. I don't want him to, I just, he's forgiven me. I reject him as king. But my friends, we've got to realize that the Bible again on this is clear. The only way to accept and embrace Jesus is to embrace him for all that he is, as savior, as God, as king. And accepting and submitting to him as king means telling him, okay, you're the king of my life. That means that I'm willing to let you tell me anything and, and I want to align everything in my life with you. 
you know, one of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago that makes this so difficult is Americans especially, we're not used to having kings. We're used to, we're used to democracy. See, in a king, they have ultimate authority. In democracy, they don't. We elect our leaders and we elect leaders who make promises to us and, and who deliver for us and who do the things that we want them to do. And if they don't do the things we want them to do, we vote them out of office. See, and a lot of times that's what we almost want with God. We want the democracy. We want, hey, God, let me tell you what you want to do. You know, this is a partnership here. You, you'll lead as long as you do what I want. And Jesus says, no, this is not a democracy. This is a kingdom. It's a kingdom where I am the king and I did, you know, deserve, in a sense, demand that ultimate authority in life. And the only way to accept him is to accept him as that. And so with each one of our lives, have you ever done that? If you ever really embrace Jesus as saying, I don't really want your forgiveness, but, but I want you as my, my king, my Lord, my, yeah, I, I want your kingdom. And that means submitting to you as king, as God. Now that leads into this next part, this next heart saying, which we see in verses 35 through 37. So let's go back to the Bible. It says, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now here's a hard saying, because what you see is you see Jesus, who we think to be the God of love, seems to be calling us to hate. And, and, and I don't know about you, but at first I can be uncomfortable with this. I mean, here, what does he seem to be saying? That he's setting man against father and daughter against, you know, that we're opposed to each other, that, that our enemies will be those of our own household. What in the world is he saying here? And in fact, in Luke 14, a parallel passage, Jesus comes straight out and uses the word hate. Look what he says, Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I'm thinking about that. And I'm thinking, you know, even if this isn't a good passage to quote, like on the first date, you know, you know, I'm thinking of, I remember back when I'm dating Sandy and if I'm trying to impress her with my spirituality and I'm saying, well, what well, my goal is to fall so in love with, with Christ that, that I want to hate my parents. And if we get married, I want to hate you. You know, that's, you know, it's that she, we wouldn't probably had a second date and some single guys might be writing down, no, take that line off. Okay. That didn't work. Okay. That's, that's, so what is he saying here? Because we've got to look at it and say, it's pretty obvious that Jesus isn't telling us that we should actively hate being hostile to people. Why? Because the Bible tells us that we're to love our enemies. Where you think about the Ten Commandments, we're to honor our father and mother. Ephesians 5, Jesus tells us that we're, you know, Paul tells us that we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church sacrificially. Now, here's the key to understanding this. When, when we use the word hate, we have one meaning. In this culture, it could have had two meanings. So when we think of the word hate, it, it, the, the meaning we think of all the way is it's the idea of actively hate, actively opposed, you know, negative feelings and, and opposition. That's one meaning. But in that culture, it could also have meant that we hate comparatively. And that's what he's talking about here. Not that we hate actively, but that we hate comparatively. Now, we don't use the word hate in this way, but we do speak in this way. And so let me show you, not using the word hate, but still the same concept. Okay, let me give you an example. All right, um, you know, how many of us remember grade school lunches? Okay, when I was young and grade school lunches, I mean, one of the things that you just hoped to have in your lunch was a ho-ho. 
I mean, I just, you know, you just, I mean, that was, that was the ultimate childhood cake. I mean, here you've got chocolate cake and frosting on the inside, chocolate coating on the outside. And if you started, if you went to lunch and you had a hole on your lunch, you were made for the day. I mean, that was great. Now, as I've gotten older, I've learned to appreciate the quality of different cake. And I'm not sold on hohos anyway. German chocolate cake, you get a good German chocolate cake, this is better than bacon. I mean, this is like, I mean, this is like, that is the ultimate. I mean, I love a good German chocolate cake. That's a real cake. Now, if I'm somewhere and I've got a, I'd say, now I'm gluten-free, so I'm not even allowed to do this, but, but let's say in theory, before I was gluten-free, you know, I've got this German cake in front of me and I've got, man, this great German chocolate cake ready to go and someone comes and says, well, here's a ho-ho. And my response is going to be something like, are you kidding me? Those things are terrible. You know, why would I want a ho-ho? I mean, you know, how can anybody eat those things? Now, let me ask you, is a ho-ho actually terrible? No, I mean, they're okay. They're, they're just terrible compared to German chocolate cake. The fact is, I will use the language of saying total rejection, but it's rejection in comparison to something that is better. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying that we should, our love for Christ should be so much greater that it makes our love for the other things pale in comparison. Look at verse 37. That's what he's saying. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In fact, what we realize is the Bible doesn't call us to love our family any less. Actually, because of my walk with Christ, I love my family more. In fact, I'll say this. I cannot love my family too much. I can't love things too much. The problem isn't loving people too much. The problem is that I love, I love too much, not that I love people too much, but, but too little, loving God too little. You see, I, I, you know, it's, if I love God too little, it's ultimately, it's, it's not that, it's, God didn't tell, call me to put my wife down, my kids down, he calls me to elevate him. And that's gonna actually teach me to love her and my kids more. He calls us to have a love for God that's so strong and so supreme that, that although I have an incredible love for my family, it pales in comparison. Think about it this way. You go out at night and you see all these stars. I was out with one of my sons you know, a couple nights ago and we said, man, some really bright stars. And it must have been you know, um, you know, some of the planets that were closer because they were so bright. He was noticing in the sky. Now, if you go outside right now, do you see any stars? They're all out. The stars haven't gone anywhere, but you don't see them because they're washed out by the incredible light of the sun. And that's what he's saying. He says, I want that kind of love that you have other things that are in the sky that are in your life that are bright, but that you have this incredible love that is so wonderful, incredible grace for me, so wonderful that it washes everything out. So then why does he use such strong language, setting father against children and because I think he's trying to challenge us to almost, again, being provocative to shock us to, to think. See, it's easy to throw out the platitude. Oh yeah, I put Jesus more than everything else. Do we really? Do we, is it really that much more important than anything else? And what, again, what does the testimony of our time say? As we said beforehand, our greatest good is, is revealed by how we spend our time. Does my time reveal that I'm really making God my highest priority? See, he's ultimately digging into our heart and he's not only asking what do we do, but what, who we are, what we value. It's really asking this question, what is our greatest good? See, let's go back to this passage. He describes the relationships of a parent to a child and a child to the parent and in-laws and is referring in there to marriage. And he's talking about all the relationships that we would consider important in life. 
He's saying, okay, if you value relationships, all these things that you would value, how important are they? And then if you go down to verse 39, it shows that he's just using that as an illustration. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's not just relationships, all areas of life. And what he's saying is, okay, those are good things. But when you come to me, don't come to me with the agenda in life of saying, okay, I really want to be married. I really want to have kids. I want to, God, here's all the things that I want to do. How can you help me? You know, don't come to me because I'm relevant and I can help you with those things. Come to me for me. Now, I want to ask you, and I say, don't come to me to make marriage better because I can help you with depression or some area of life. What do you think of that? Don't come to me because I'm relevant. Is Jesus relevant? Yes. Can Jesus make your marriage better? Yes, unquestionably. Can he help you in your parenting? Can he help you with your mental health? Unquestionably, he can. So then what's wrong with coming to him for those purposes? See, here's what we need to realize. When we do that, what we're saying is that the most important thing in life is the, the thing that we think we need to be happy is my marriage, is my kids, is my job, is my finances, whatever it is. That's my chief end. That's my greatest good. And the problem is when I come to God and saying, God, help me with these things, what I'm doing, really doing is saying, God, this is what I love the most. You're just a means to help me get what I really want. So the question is, we have to ask, is God our ultimate good? Or is he just a means to some greater good? Something that we love more? What is the thing that we put our ultimate trust in, our pursuit of, of, for, of hope and trust for happiness? The thing that we love the most, the thing that, that is in your life, that, that's our functional God. And again, too, too often we can come to God and we can come to him as a means to an end. In fact, a lot of people that will get angry with God where something will happen or some area will be threatened or taken away. And God, why can't you do this? And I've seen people walk away from faith and walk away from the church. And really it's because we're saying, God, this is what I value the most and I'm just trying to do the things to get you to give me what values the most and you failed me. And God's saying, no, the problem was is that you made that thing your God and I'm just a means. That's your greater good. And you just want me to be the means to that greater good. No, God wants us to come to him as the ultimate end. I'm mean, going to go back to even that clip that we started with, with Frozone. And, and, you know, what is the greatest good? What is the thing that we're going to sacrifice other things for and to say, this is the thing I'm not going to let go of? Now, even in this, it's possible to misinterpret part of what Jesus is saying here. Because if we look at verse 37, it says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What Jesus isn't saying is that we have to do this to earn his favor, to become worthy, to earn his love. No, the, you know, the religion is all about works. It's about here's what you do to be good enough to earn God's favor. You know, so here's the performance, here's the hoops you have to jump through. True Christianity is that, no, we start by acknowledging we cannot do that. We're all sinners who, you know, they've fallen short of God's standard, that we admit our need, we confess that before God, we ask him to forgive us, we accept that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, ask him to forgive us, we trust in what he has done for us to forgive our sins and to give us his righteousness. He makes us worthy. So then what does he say? Whoever loves father more mother is not worthy of me. He's calling us to find our worth in Jesus' worth. You see, it's not a work that we have to do. 
It's ultimately saying, no, that I realize that what Jesus has done for me and because he's what he's done for me, he's made me worthy. And therefore that's what drives me to love him. That's what drives me to pursue him. And ultimately is this, you see, when we love things other more than Christ, it's revealing that those things are in a sense our God. And we come to God and we're not loving him first, we're, we're in a sense treating him as a means to an end. God, how do I press this button to, you know, because you're just a means to get the things that I really want, the things that are really important in life. And part of what Jesus is saying is that, no, when you do that, you're showing that you don't have a love that matches what it should be. If you really understand who I am, you're gonna have a love that's worthy, in a sense, worthy of my value. You're gonna love me in a sense that realizes that you put me first. So now, what's, where does that get into? Why do we do that? Because Jesus is, in a sense, insecure and he needs to be loved that way, he needs to be affirmed? No, because we're created to have God at the center of our life. And when we don't have him at the center, our life isn't gonna work. That's what he says in verses 38 and 39. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's calling us to lose our life to find it. See, what he's calling us to is when we look at this in the context of, you know, scripture interprets scripture, he's saying, okay, what I want you to do is that, you know, um, you know, immediately before, putting me before, you know, father and mother and spouses, that you have a love that's far greater than anything else. That, and when he says, take up our cross and lose it for his sake, what he's saying is take these things that would be most important to us, that would cry out for attention, that would be our greatest good, and deny them. Not because he wants us to be miserable, but because he said if you, when he says, well, if you find your life, you'll lose it, his point is this, if you're looking for satisfaction and fulfillment in things, even if you have it perfectly, ultimately you're gonna come up empty. I mean, I see you've heard, many of you have heard me say this before. I love my wife, I have a wonderful wife. She is a great wife, she is a terrible God. And by that I mean, if I trust in her to meet my needs that God has designed to meet, she will never do it. And then what's gonna happen is I'm gonna get frustrated in my marriage because she's not meeting my needs, she's failing me, and so my marriage is gonna fall apart not because she's not a wonderful wife, but because I'm asking her to meet needs she isn't designed to meet. That's the point here. You see, no, I want God in God's place. I want to keep God the God thing in my life. That's the ultimate good. And the more that I put God there, and I'm finding him that he's meeting my deepest needs, then I can appreciate my wife and my kids and my work. I can align all those things. When I lose my life for his sake, when I take up the cross, when I deny myself, that's when I actually find the greatest good. Not just your greatest good, the greatest good. I, I find myself pursuing the only thing that ultimately will satisfy and fulfill. See, that's what he builds on when he says in verses 40 to 42, whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me and he receives a prophet because he's a prophet. We see a prophet's word and the one who receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person's reward. He's talking about this idea that we need to pursue the rewards of the greatest good. He's not calling us just to self-denial, to be miserable in the sense that, you know, some people have this idea, well, just deny yourself and you're gonna turn it in heaven and you'll get rewards then. That's true. But that's not all that he's saying. You see, what he's saying is that this is the greatest good and the more that I make God the very center of my life, the more that I will discover the life that I was made for. 
And so when you look at this whole section, let's go back and just see it all ties together. Remember, the, the whole section is Jesus is calling us to continue his ministry, to go out to reach people into the world. And, and he says, okay, but the, the harvest is plentiful. People are gonna respond and, and I give you my power to do that and be optimistic and be courageous. And, but then he comes back and he says, yeah, but some are gonna respond positively, some are gonna be negatively, some are gonna hate you, they're gonna oppose you, there's gonna be opposition, persecution, there may be a cost. And what he's saying is, understand, he comes back and he says, but remember the good news. Yes, there may be persecution. There may be a cost. There might be times that, that we lose something. But it's ultimately God's reward. Because if I deny myself, if, if I say no to the ho-ho's and I get the, you know, the German chocolate cake, I'm winning that process. You know, this is the ultimate good. This is the thing that I need to be able to warn to say no to the things that are of lesser value to say yeah, the ultimate yes to the thing of ultimate value. And what is the reward? It's not just luxuries in heaven. No, it's understanding that the reward is finding fulfillment and contentment in him, which is, the, is not only eternal reward, it's discovering the joy and meaning and significance now. So it's ultimately not only pursuing a relationship with Christ, but the greatest good is falling in love with Christ and not only studying his word, but his heart and, and understanding that his heart and his purpose was to seek and save that which is lost. To, to carry forth the message of the kingdom. That's what God has called us to do. And the more that we do that, will it be hard at times? Yes. Will it be frustrating? Yes. Will we face people that reject us? Yes. But the more that we align with his heart, with his passion, with his, with his, with his values of his kingdom, you see, the more that we are investing in ourselves in the greatest good, the thing that ultimately we will find our life in, the more that we find him. And so let me encourage you to do that. I, I want to, I don't know about you, I want to live a life of, it'd be nice to have a life of ease. I really want a life of joy and of peace, of meaning and significance. To have a life that I invest myself in, that I know that, it, that things are happening that, that have the impact of eternity. I don't know about you, that's what I want. That's what Jesus promises. That's what he calls us to. And I hope we can encourage each other in that and challenge each other in that. Together pursue this great call of living for the greatest good, the life of his reward, of eternal significance. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.